Hi, I'm Josh Van Berkel. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. All right. How are we? We all good? Yeah. Yeah. Be honest. Did you miss me? Yeah. Yes, Jared did. You were with me the whole time. So um, just for any guests that are here or for anybody that maybe just has been wondering where where I've been, um, Jared, my younger brother, and I uh, went over to Africa for a couple of weeks. And so I thought just for this morning we'd take a little break from the book of Acts and I'll just unpack for you what happened for us while we were over in Africa and, uh, and I also, I want to issue you a challenge this morning, because while we were in Africa, I was very confronted by uh, one thing in particular, very challenged by it, and I just don't think it's fear that I'm challenged by something and you're not. So I thought I'll bring it back, and I'll challenge you with it as well, and then we can all be challenged together. So my plan this morning is just to share a couple of highlights from Africa, because everybody's asking me, how is Africa? And if I do it like this, I can save myself 100 individual conversations, which makes my life easier. Is that okay? So uh, really quickly, in a nutshell, uh, how did we end up in Africa? Uh, Who's heard of Derek Prince? A lot of the older crew would have heard of Derek Prince. Maybe some of the younger ones. (laughs) Just joking. All the cool people. Um, Derek Prince actually passed away in 2003. So, you know, don't be afraid if you're a younger person to go, I don't know who Derek Prince is. But Derek Prince was a pretty radical guy, right? I mean, he had an amazing ministry. He was very intelligent. In fact, one of the things we discovered while we were over in Africa was that he spoke, they think, at least 10 languages fluently. He would preach right out of the Greek. He wouldn't preach out of English Bibles. He'd preach right out of the Greek, right out of the Latin, because he understood all of those. Fiercely, fiercely intelligent man. And he had an extraordinary itinerant ministry. He wrote dozens of books. He had uh, a radio broadcast that went around the world. You can jump onto YouTube and watch him speaking here in New Zealand, among other places. And so he was just, uh, just a real force for Christianity, a real force for the kingdom of heaven being expanded. And he passed away in 2003. But Derek Prince Ministries, as an organization, as an institution, still exists today uh, and is doing a lot of great things around the world. We've got a Derek Prince Ministries head office here in New Zealand, which kind of oversees the South Pacific. And the goal of the Derek Prince Ministry is to equip people around the world using Derek Prince resources and teachings and trainings and things like that. So, um, through a very strange quirk, uh, Derek Prince Ministries here in New Zealand has a digital office, uh, which actually represents Derek Prince Ministries around the world, and their office is right next door to Jared's Fantail Studios office in town. And so they were chatting about the fact that over in Africa, they were going to hold a, a, a summit for all of the Derek Prince ministry leaders on the eastern side of Africa. So the Derek Prince ministry leader in Kenya, the Derek Prince ministry leader in Ethiopia, the one in Uganda, the one in Tanzania, the one in Mali, they were going to all come together in Nairobi in Kenya for a couple of days and just kind of debrief on how it was all going. And they thought, gee, seeing as we've got all of these guys together, it would be a great opportunity to maybe interview them because they've got amazing stories. They've got amazing testimonies. They've got amazing history about what it was like to grow up in Africa. And they thought, well, you know, for posterity's sake, 
why don't we interview them? And so they said to Jared, well, can we take your team over and you can interview all of these guys? And Jared said, yeah, we'd love to do that. And why don't we bring Josh over and uh, he can help with the interviewing. And then we'll also record a TV show because how many people remember in 2019, we went over to Peru and we filmed a TV show, a three-part series about two brothers that hop on a barge and boat down the Amazon River and then get off at various villages, not nearly as many as we thought we would, uh, and pray for people. So this is kind of like a follow-up. So we were over in Africa, in Kenya, wearing a couple of different hats. First of all, we were wearing Derek Prince ministry hats, and we were interviewing all of these African leaders. So here's me interviewing a man called Jeffrey. Jeffrey was kind of like our guy on the ground. He was the Derek Prince ministry leader in Kenya, which is where we were doing all of our stuff. But at the same time, we were also doing television things as well. And so that TV series, we're hoping to come out maybe towards the end of this year, early next year. It's kind of the goal. So you'll be able to see all of the antics that we got up to while we were there. But I just wanted to share a couple of takeaways from our time there. Uh, And then, yes, issue with this challenge, uh, which I am wrestling with at the moment as well. And just a couple of photos to kind of keep it sweet. Here is me playing at a church. I think one of the the most challenging things for us as white people is that we were going often, like in the cities in Nairobi and stuff, it was fine. They're used to seeing white people, no dramas. But you hop on a bus or on a van, or a four-wheel drive, and you four-wheel drive two hours out to a village, they've not seen a white person ever. And all they want to do is touch you. It's crazy. And so, you know, we were at this church. I sat down at the keyboard uh, wearing a really a shirt. I've got like five of these shirts. So, um, And within, within like 30 seconds, the kids were just like, boof, like all around me. And, and they don't, they're not polite. They don't have personal boundaries. They're just climbing on top of you, clamoring on top of you. Anytime you sit down anywhere. That's why, <laughs> this is why I shaved my beard off. Because they'll literally, they'll just, they'll just start tugging at your beard. Like I'm not even, I'm not even joking. Here's Jeremy. This is what it's like. Like you sit down and they'll just, look at that kid up the top. What the heck is going on there? That is, that is wild. That is one happy child, right? And so it just, it gets really exhausting. Like anytime you sit anywhere, you're like, you know, it's like that proverbial mum thing. Like if you want a break from your kids, you've just got to go hide in the toilet. But there is no toilet. There's just a hole in the ground and it's gross and it stinks and you don't want to spend a second longer in there than you have to, right? That just, at one point we were in this village and uh, every, everyone's just like, there's like, always like 50, 60 people just everywhere you go. Anytime you walk anywhere, you know, there's kids following you. And so they say, hey, we want you to walk down to this hut and pray for this lady. And so one afternoon we went out and we just kind of went into hut after hut, praying for people, praying for healing, praying for blessing, whatever it might be. But every time we went anywhere, there's like 50, 60 kids just tracking you. And anytime you stop moving, they're just on top of you. They're pulling on you and tugging on you. And, and at one stage we were there and uh, a guy came up to me, the interpreter, and he says, oh, I've just got a favor to ask. I said, what's that? He said, well, all the women, not the kids, all the women have asked if it would be all right if they could touch you. (laughs) I said, well, I was wondering when this would happen. It's only a matter of time, let's be honest. And uh, I said, well, I, you know, I guess it would be all right. There's like 100 people here and TV cameras and everything, so it's, it's fine. So they all come over, and they're just like, they're just rubbing my arm, they're grabbing my fingers. One lady comes up, she's pulling on my earlobe like this, and they're, as they're doing it, they're just like cracking up. Like, they just think it's hilarious. And so at one point I said, I said what's, um, what's happening here? Like, what's, what's, 
it's a bit weird. What's going on? And he says, oh, they've just never felt someone so soft. <clears throat> I was like, that's, that's hurtful. <clears throat> so uh, it, was, it was a really, really good time. I think my favorite thing that happened the whole time we were away was actually at the end of the trip. We were flying home. Jared was with me, and we had another guy called Luke, who was our cameraman. And we hopped on the plane to fly from Johannesburg to Singapore, and our three seats went together. So there was two seats, and then there was one seat on the row in front. And so Jared and Luke sat next door to each other, and I sat on the row in front. And I'm kind of looking around going, well, I kind of feel left out. Also, that bought a whole bunch of snacks for the flight, and I didn't want to miss out on those. And so I kind of turned around, and I said to the guy behind me, I said, hey, man, uh, would it be all right if you and I swapped? Because I'm traveling with those two guys, and then we can kind of all be together. And he's like, well, if you want to. I was like, well, only if you want to. And he's like, well, only if you want to. And in hindsight, now I look back and I'm like, he really didn't want to. But I didn't pick that up at the time. So eventually I said, look, actually, yes, I would like to swap. You sit here, I'll sit there. So we switched seats. And then maybe 15, 20 minutes later, the plane takes off. The woman next to him just goes, throws up all on his leg and stuff. And we're all sitting behind him like, oh, that's a bit awkward. And uh, Jared's just like, oh, it's so dark that you moved. I would have loved it if that had happened to you. <laughs> like, this, what kind of brother are you? Like, this is a horrible thing to say. And so he ends up getting up. They move him up the front to like a, an aisle seat further up. And then for the next 13 hours, every time he goes to the loo, I'm just like, you know, like pretend it didn't happen. But um, I was like, thank you, God, for looking after me. Uh, this is us at an, at an orphanage. As well, the orphanage was pretty crazy, just about 500 kids packed in there, and again, they're just climbing over you every step of the way. Uh, we also, every time we went into a village, we would get greeted by a traditional greeting, which is a whole bunch of women dancing in a circle and, and making just like loud noises and stuff, um, and they'd have like a pot in the middle, and as you dance around, they'd kind of quieten down, sort of lose interest. And then you'd have to throw money into the pot, and they'd be, oh, they'd jump back into action again and dance around. So at one point, Liz messaged me and said, how's your day going? I said, I'm paying women to dance for me. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's okay. There's like cameras and other people here and, and stuff. And, and so that was, that was a very common thing that happened. That's, again, us just going through the village. Not great quality photo, that one, because I've taken it from a, a video clip. And the other thing that was incredibly confronting was the food while we were there. You want to see a happy face? Look at this guy. <laughs> that, that is like, I am done eating Kenyan food. It was, it was pretty rough going, the Kenyan cuisine. Uh, they only had two options, and they called it dry or wet. So you could order, do you want chicken? You can have it wet or dry. Wet meant that it just came out smothered in sauce. It was like 90% bone with a little bit of meat on it. And dry, I have never had a more accurate description of a dish than dry chicken. That thing was like eating a tire. I'm not even sure if I wasn't eating tires at some point. And so by the time we got to the end of the trip, because that was just all we had every day. We'd get up, we'd have eggs for breakfast, and then wet or dry chicken or wet or dry goat for lunch, and then wet or dry chicken or wet or dry goat for dinner. And we did it every day, day after day after day after day. And by the time I got to the end, I was like, I'm just, I feel called to fast. I'm just going to start fasting. So I, but I'd only fast the meals that I didn't like. <laughs> And, uh, and the other weird thing about Africa, too, uh, is that they, they don't like telling you that they can't do something. 
So if you go to a restaurant, which we did every now and again, restaurant, I use the term loosely, uh, like they had, they had a lot of hotels everywhere. Uh, and it became a running joke because you'd drive through a village and there would be a tin shack on the side of the road, literally with holes in it. You could see through it to the other side and it would just have hotel painted on the, on the front. Every, every place had a hotel. Uh, and the same with restaurants. My favourite restaurant we drove past was El Pacino's Restaurant. I'm not sure if Al Pacino's aware that there's a restaurant named after him in, in Kenya, but there is. Um, but they would have their menu, and, and we learned eventually that the menu wasn't a menu of food that you could order. It was like their wish list of what they'd love to be able to provide <laughs> if they were actually a fully functioning restaurant. Um, but the hilarious thing was you'd order something, and they would just smile and say, okay. And then they'd go off, and they'd use their initiative to work out what they could give you instead. So you'd order a chocolate milkshake, and they'd say, okay, and they'd go off, and then half an hour later, they'd come back with a strawberry milkshake. And you'd say, I'd, I'd ordered a chocolate milkshake. they say, we don't have chocolate. <laughs> oh, okay, maybe you could have told me that when I ordered it. I would have picked something different. I don't like strawberry. Or, or Jared's personal favorite, ordered some ice cream one night, and uh, they say, okay, yep, and off they go. And then half an hour later, there's no ice cream. And they come back, and he says, oh, can I, can I get that ice cream that I ordered? She said, oh, I'll get you some milk. And he's like, mm, it's not really the same thing, though, is it? Like, I'd have some ice cream. Ah, we don't have ice cream. So, well, again, maybe you could have told me that half an hour. But it wasn't just like the little wee things. We went to one day, my highlight day, we went to Burger King, and we had a driver with us, and, and we thought it would be nice, we'd buy the driver some lunch, and he didn't want, we all ordered Whopper combos. I was like, I just need something Western. Give me a burger, for goodness sake. So we all ordered Whopper combos, and he ordered some dry chicken, or whatever it was that Burger King was selling. And then at the end, they bring out Whopper combos for everybody, and they give him a Whopper combo as well. And we say, well, we, we ordered chicken for him. They said, oh, we don't have any of that. So we just got him a Whopper combo. It's just weird. Like, you know, but they, they, they put it through as a Whopper combo when we paid for a Whopper combo. I was like, at some point, you've got to admit. I just don't know what they're thinking. Like, at some point, we're going to get caught here. Like, when we, eventually, when we just don't turn up with ice cream, they'll probably figure it out. But they were just like, oh, we'll let future Kenyans worry about that. So we, ha- we had a great time. Uh, a lot of highlights, a lot of fun, a lot of laughs, a few tears as well. Uh, I think it was about day three, my body just fully shut down. It took us 44 hours to get there, and uh, I don't sleep when I travel, I don't sleep on planes, so I was operating on like two or three days of no sleep, and then it got to the Saturday, we'd been there about three days, and I just started to feel worse and worse and worse, and we had to drive to a Bible college graduation, bumpy roads, we get halfway there, and I'm like, I'm just going to hurl, and so I have to wind down the window, and I'm spewing out the car window as we're driving, and I turn around, and Jared's just there with his iPhone, like, (laughs) filming the whole thing. He's like, this is going to make great TV. I'm like, get out of my face, man. Like, the humanity. So it was really great. But I think, and this is the the challenge that I want to issue you this morning. Uh, We started off the whole trip by spending a couple of days at this camp, at this sort of um, motel complex, interviewing a whole bunch of Dara Prince ministry leaders from around Africa. And we were asking them questions like, well, how did you meet Jesus? And what, what got you into ministry? And, and what's your story? And, and there were some crazy stories. You know, there were, there were stories about the woman who became a Christian because um, someone tried to pay her to become a Satanist. And she went home and she said to her dad, I've got this offer. It was written out. I'll pay you X amount of, you know, Kenyan shillings or whatever it might have been. I think she was from Mali, actually, to become a Satanist. And her dad said, I just think that's like a bad idea. 
you know, and so that was kind of like what started it for her. And, uh, you know, we talked to men who, who talked about growing up as children and seeing their parents dragged into the town square and flogged in front of everybody. We talked to people who had to, you know, spend time on their own because their parents were imprisoned for their faith. It was just an incredibly challenging couple of days. Uh, and I'll tell you one story very briefly. We talked to this guy called Yemi. Yemi's amazing. He was just uh, uh, just a... Uh, a force of energy. He was in his mid-60s, but he looked super fit. And uh, every time he saw you, he would just say, hello, man of God, which I thought was really cool until someone said, I think he just does that because he can't be bothered learning people's names. And I thought, no, that's not true. And then about a weekend, he was doing a, a selfie video to his wife and he came over to me and he said, and here's my friend James. And I was like, dang it, you don't know my name. You're just man of God, everybody. But uh, he, was, he was saying that he, um, uh, I was telling a, a leadership team this during the week that uh, he had to go pick up a, a guest speaker in London. And the funny thing about Yemi, we all teased him because no one knew where Yemi was from. Because every time you asked him, where are you from, he'd give a different answer. He's like, I'm from Spain or I'm from England or I'm from Scotland. Because he was just, he was always everywhere, just very traveled. Uh, and so he was in England and he had to uh, accompany this guest speaker to his church in Scotland. And he just tells a story about how he picked this guy up and they hopped on the train. And it's quite a long train ride from, from London. It's like sort of eight hours or something. And as soon as the train pulled out of the station, this guy that he was accompanying just started praying very loudly in the train carriage, you know, praying in tongues, bending over, groaning, like just really sort of pushing into God. And Yemi was mortified. Everybody in the train is looking at them. And so he's kind of digging his elbow into this guy's ribs and says, dude, like everyone's looking at us. And the guy was like, I don't care. This is our train carriage. We're allowed to pray if we want. They can go sit somewhere else. Uh, and so they get to Scotland, and they go to bed, and the next morning at 4.30, there's a bang on Yemi's door, and he opens it up, and there's this guy, he says, come on, we're going for a prayer walk. He drags him out at 4.30 in the morning, and Yemi said, even though it was 4.30 in the morning, for some reason, there were people on the streets everywhere, and they were all looking at them weird, because this guy's praying in tongues and pushing into God, and Yemi's apologizing to people as they go past, and uh, they end up back in London, and Yemi said they had to go do a healing meeting, and this guy... Uh, was sitting in the back seat, and on the way to the healing meeting, they picked up one of Yemi's friends who needed healing. She had cataracts in her eyes, she could hardly see, and they're driving to the, the healing meeting, and they're just talking about nothing. And all of a sudden, this woman starts yelling hysterically. She says, I can see, I can see, and she'd be completely healed of her blindness. No one had prayed for her, but just sitting next to this man in the back seat. And Yemi said to me, he said, man, I was so impacted by just the level of anointing that this guy carried. He said, and, and I, I sat down with him and I said, where has this come from? And he traced it back to the fact that this guy would get up at 4.30 every morning and just go pray for a couple of hours before he started his day. And so Yemi said to me, he said, for the last two years, I get up every morning at 4.30 and I go for a 90-minute walk up my hill and I come back down and then I start my day. And I sat there going, my goodness, I don't get up at 4.30. Well, I did get up at 4.30 this week, and I went and played PlayStation because I couldn't sleep. It's not quite, not quite the same thing. So here's, here's my challenge. Here was the thing that kind of hit me over and over and over again. And, and talking with Jared, I think it was something that he picked up as well. And talking with these, these guys, these men and women, it just became so obvious to me that they were completely and utterly sold out for the kingdom. They had no other focus they had no other, I mean, they had kids, they had families, obviously, 
but compared to how intentional they were being about pursuing God, it was like everything else just faded away. And I found myself getting more and more convicted about just how singular they were around their purpose, their passion, their calling, their destiny. They just knew what they were called to do, and they were bringing the kingdom of God into their communities, and nothing else to them mattered anywhere near as much as that mattered. And as I sat there and I listened to their stories and I just picked up you know, who they were and what they were carrying, I just started to feel more and more like, oh, how, how distracted do we get? It, it almost, and this is not the right language, and so don't read too much into it, but I almost sat there and felt like, like these guys are serious and we're just pretending. It's almost kind of how it felt. Like they've got both feet in. They're all in, they're sold out. And how often do we have kind of one foot in, one foot out? Like, yes, I'm, I'm in it, I'm in it. But at the same time, I've also, I'm also in the world. I've got my things that I'm interested in. I just want to run through a real quick parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 14. And I want to make a couple of points, and we're going to break into groups and have a quick chat about it. Luke chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus is telling a story. He says this. Oh, that's me again. Look at that. He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. So this is a type of God. Jesus is telling this parable, but the master of the banquet is God. And God is saying to his servant, I want you to go and I want you to tell everybody that I am ready. I want you to invite people into my presence. I want you to invite them to connect with me. I want you to invite them to fellowship with me. I want you to invite them into relationship with me. I want to share a meal with them. I want to bless them. I want to provide for them. I want to love them. I want to show kindness to them. Go out and tell them that it's all good to go. We're ready. And so the servant goes out, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. I've got no idea what that means. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married and I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became very angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the people of the poor, sorry, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And then the parable goes on. He brings them in and he says, look, there's still more room. And and so the father says, go out and bring bring in more people. But I was just reading this during the week and I was like, man, How do we apply this parable to our life? It's a sobering parable that Jesus is telling, where he says, hey, you've got a God here who's ready to connect. He has, like, everything is laid on. He has provided everything. It's not a potluck. It's not like, hey, when you come, bring some cake or some dried chicken or anything like that. It's like God's done everything. Invitation sent out. All you need to do is just show up. And yet this guy goes out and he comes back with this report. They don't want to. They're too distracted. They're too busy. They're too focused on other things. They're not prepared to accept the invitation. And so there's just there's three things here, that uh, three excuses that are given. Number one, he says, I can't come because I've just bought a field. And to me, and this is a very, very shallow interpretation. I'm sure it goes a lot deeper. But to me, this field, it just represents possessions. 
It represents comfort. This guy says, I've just bought a field. I've just got this stuff. I've just got this new toy. And he says, I want to go and look at it, is literally what it says in uh, Luke chapter 14. I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. It's not like the field wouldn't have been there the next day. And so the first excuse I think we make often, and this is something that uh, the reality is of being in Africa, is that they don't have, to anywhere near the same extent, this distraction. They have possessions, but, like, not a lot. We were at the orphanage halfway through our trip. There was a guy sitting beside us, uh, and he was very sharply dressed. His name was Stephen. He was wearing a suit and a shirt and a tie. He had nice shoes. He had a cell phone, and he was a pastor, a Bible college teacher, and I just thought, oh, that's nice for Stephen. Seems like a nice guy. And then a couple of days later, we went to the Bible college that he was teaching. And as part of our trip, he said, look, come, I want you to come and see my house. I'm very proud of my house. He just bought this house and he wanted us to see it. And so we drove another 20 minutes down this road full of potholes and dirt. And we ended up just in the middle of nowhere in this field. And there was a tin shack just in the middle of it. And we hopped out and that was his house. And I'm not even joking. It was, it was a tin shack. It had one main room, and you walked into this main room, and it was just a concrete dirt floor. It had three couches up against the three walls. And no light, because they don't have holes in the tin, otherwise the rain gets in. No power. So it was very dark. The only light was the one that came in through the doorway. And off this room were two other rooms, which were separated by blankets that hang down. One room was their bedroom, which again was just this dirt concrete floor with a mattress straight on it and a pile of clothes, and that was it. And the other room was their kid's bedroom. And I went into that and actually took videos and sent it back to my kids. I was like, you guys need to see this. There was one dirty single mattress on the floor. And on that dirty single mattress, they had four children sleeping. And that was their house. And I didn't even realize until after I left, I was like, I didn't see a kitchen or anything. And so I went back, and as you walk in, I was like, where's your, where's your kitchen? And he said, There. And he pointed down outside at the dirt. There were three bricks in the dirt. He's like, that's where, my wife, that's where my wife does all of her cooking. You have to, you have to see it to believe it. It's, it's insane. And I said to Jared afterwards, I said, it's not even the fact that they're living in this tin shack, that their kitchen is three bricks in the dirt, that their kids are all sharing one dirty mattress, their, their toilet is outside the house. It's a hole in the ground. They've got no running water. They've got to go to the well and draw it and bring it back. They've got no fridge or any ability to store food. So every meal, they've got to go and get the food for that meal, then come back and cook it. They can't open the fridge and be like, well, we'll have, you know, we'll have this or that. Every meal, every lunch, every dinner, they've got to go and buy food just for that meal, then come back and cook it. It wasn't even that. What got me was how proud he was to show us what he had. That was what got me. He was like, come in, come in. And, I was, and we were like, oh, look, we don't need to come into your house for, to film. He's like, no, come in, come in. Introduced us to his wife. He's like, this is my wife. She has given me four children. My only wife. Every time you got introduced to anyone, they'd say, I am a man of one wife. Every time you met a woman, she'd say, I am the only wife of my husband because polygamy was uh, actually quite a big deal over there. How's about this to mess? This is not what I'm talking about. How's about this to mess with your brain? Talking to one of the Derek Prince guys there. And he said they had a guy come into their school, became a Christian, got converted, 
and uh, was just an amazing guy. And this guy came to this Derek Prince leader and said, hey, look, I know that this is going to exclude me from ministry, from leadership, but I've got two wives. I've had two wives for many, many years, and both wives have had kids. And so I've got essentially two families, and I am a very devoted father to both of those families. The way that it works over there is that you have one house for one wife and your kids, and then another house for the other wife and kids, but on the same piece of property, on the same land. And the father would then bounce between however many he had. And so this guy said, I know it precludes me from ministry because the Bible says that you can't be a leadership in leadership if you've got more than one wife. He said, but I can't. Like, what do I do? And so I'm talking with this Derek Prince leader, and he said, he said, I told him, look, your first priority has to be to your family. And he said, how crazy is that? that? That he said, he decided I would rather keep my two families intact than have to turn my back on my wife and kids to become a missionary or whatever. And this guy said to me, he said, I think he made the right decision. And I'm like, man, that's, that's a weird thing to think about. Like you're, you're giving, as a Christian leader, your advice is like, don't, don't leave your multiple wives. I'm not saying that I have an opinion on that at all. I'm just like, man, sometimes life is complicated. Um, and I don't honestly know. Like what, what would God prefer? That he, he abandon his wife and kids that he's been bringing up together for the last 15 years to become a quote-unquote leader or what? I don't know. I'm just saying it's, you go over there and you're like, man, things aren't always tidy. So the first thing that, that I think we give an excuse to God for is around possessions and comfort. The second thing the guy says, I can't come. I've got to go and check out my five yoke of oxen. Now, five yoke of oxen, that's a pretty big purchase. This guy is a serious businessman. This is a guy that's, that's probably you know, got a lot of fields to plow up. Maybe he's even thinking I can hire out my oxen to different people. Maybe he's got a bit of a business running. But five head of oxen is a, or five yoke of oxen is a lot of oxen. So this is someone who's like, look, I've got business on my life. I've got, you know, career advancement to think about. I'm trying to make money. I've got investments. I've got all this kind of stuff. And the second thing I think that sometimes distracts us or causes us to make excuses uh, is that, is that career. It's worldly success. Maybe I'm speaking more to men than women. I don't know. It's just very easy to get caught in the rat race, keeping up with the Joneses. Got to have more money. Got to buy more stuff. Got to be seen to be successful in the eyes of the world. And then the third thing that the person says, different person says, I can't come, I just got married. I think the third thing sometimes that causes us to say no to entering into God's presence or to committing to Him is that we get so sidetracked by relationships, by family. Now here's the fascinating thing when you look at this list. Is any of those things bad? I don't think so. Is it bad to have possessions? I don't think so. Is it bad to have things that help make you comfortable? I don't think so. Is it bad to have a successful career? No. Is family bad? No. Are relationships bad? No. None of those things are bad unless they become more important to us than God. And so these three people that responded to the invitation, they all said, hey, look, this is more important to me than connecting with God. It's more important to me that I get my success sorted, that I get my life sorted, that I get my possession sorted. All that stuff matters more to me than just spending time in his presence. And I think that's when we come unstuck. And the big challenge for me when I was away, I was like, I don't, I don't see people that are dealing with these issues. Or if they have, they've dealt with them and they've put it behind them and they are just totally sold out for him. And so I just wanted to leave that with you 
this morning. And I wanted us to break into groups. Just a couple of questions. What distracts you? What is it that when God says, hey, come in, I want to meet with you. I've got the table set. I want to do relationship. I want to do fellowship. I want to tell you what my plans and purposes are for your life. What is it that makes you say, nah, I'm okay. I've actually got this to do instead. Is it possessions? I heard somebody say once, there's nothing wrong with having stuff as long as stuff doesn't have you. I think that's a great way to put it. Is it career? Is it worldly success? Is it climbing the corporate ladder? Is it being you know, the best at something that you can be in the eyes of other people? Is it relationships? Is it family? I think family is super important. I think that as a father, I have a serious responsibility to be a great husband and to be a great dad. But if I am putting my wife and kids constantly before God and saying no to invitations from God to spend time with them, so I do it with my family, then I think my priorities are out. So what distracts you? And then the second one is, what are you going to do about it? I don't even know if you can come up with an answer right now. But I'm putting this on you because this is the question that I'm asking myself right now, and I don't want to do it by myself. Right? I've come back from Africa going, okay, what, what have I got in my life that is potentially pulling me in the opposite direction to where God wants me to go? What have I got in my life that is setting itself up as an obstacle between me and God? Is it, and in all honesty, for me, it's, I think it's all of that stuff. All of that stuff gets in the way of me and God. Comfort, yes. Possessions, yes. Wanting to be seen to be successful, yes. Even in church leadership, I want to be seen to be, that gets in the way. Family, yes. Relationship, yes. Ah, oh, yes, I, should, I could go read my Bible and connect with God, but ah, I'll, I'd rather just watch Netflix. And if I do it with my wife, then I can justify it as couple time. That's important. It is the most boring type of couple time, but that's another thing. <clears throat> you guys are still getting too serious. I needed to make an inappropriate joke. All right. So at the end of this year, start of next year, the TV series will come out, and it's very funny, very lighthearted, very... Actually, I don't know what's in it. Probably me spewing up out of the window at some point. Uh, maybe us standing on the rock. I'll finish with this story, and then I'll break into groups. We were, we were, uh, we were somewhere, and Jeffrey, the, our leader, said, hey, I want to take you to this really important landmark. And we said, oh, okay, what is it? He said, it's a special rock, and water comes out of this rock 24 hours a day, seven days a week. doesn't matter whether it's raining or dry, whether it's wet season or not. Water just comes out of this rock. It's a miracle. And we're like, well, that sounds like a pretty cool thing to see. All right, how far away is it? He said, 20 minutes. Africa, 20 minutes is like an hour, hour and a half. Like we learned that pretty quick. How far away is it? Half an hour. Uh, two hours, that's like a whole day. So we drive like an hour to get to this rock. And it was a pretty impressive rock. Like it was up on the top of this hill. And it was like multiple stories high. It was huge. And there was absolutely no, we couldn't work out how it had got there. Like what the geographical you know, makeup of the land was where it had been spat out of a volcano a couple of thousand years ago. It was just a massive rock, like multiple stories high, just sitting on the top of the hill. And we're like, that's a pretty cool rock. Be curious to see the water coming out of it. And so we climb up the hill and there's some old villages up there with no teeth that don't speak English. And so they're chattering to our interpreter about different things. And so we climb up the hill and we stand right in front of the rock. Like it's, you can almost touch it. It's like right there. And you're looking at it like as a big rock. We're standing on this, this massive rock slab as well. And then one of the locals comes out and he starts gibbering away. And, and I said to Jeffrey, I haven't seen any water, Jeffrey. I feel like we've driven a long way to look at a rock. Like we have these in New Zealand. 
didn't need to drive an hour to see this rock. And he said, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on. So he's interpreting for us and comes back and he interprets for us. The guy says, no, there's no water coming out of this rock. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no water here. If it rains, then we get water. But that's not what's so important about this rock. This rock's very important because it's, a, it's our altar for our sacrifices to our God. And we're like, oh. And he says, actually, that concrete slab that you're standing on, that's the altar. That's where we do all of our sacrificing. And we're like, ugh, oh, gross. And there's this black mark on the rock right in front of us. And he says, yeah, we bring chickens up and we hold them by the legs and we smash them against the rock. Uh, and so that's just, we're like, we're looking at all this dried blood and stuff. And so we're like, wait a second, just to clarify, you do a bunch of sacrifices to your demonic God right here where we're standing. And he's like, yeah. And Jared's like, oh, I'm not feeling very good. <laughs> Right, and, and my whole left arm just started swelling up, and I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh, my whole arm is puffing up. And I tried to get my wedding ring off, and he got it off just in time, and then my arm was like, Pfft. and so we're like, ah, flipping demons getting there. So I said, Jeffrey, this is a terrible place for you to have brought us. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry, I didn't know it was all the stuff. I'm like, man, you're the worst tour guide ever. Jeffrey was the worst tour guide ever. He was hilarious, but he's the worst tour guide ever. We went to his house, we're walking around his yard, and he says, so he said, in Kenya, you don't bury dead people in graveyards and cemeteries. You just bury them at your house. He's like, you bury all the men on the right-hand side of the house. You bury all the women on the left-hand side of the house. He's like, that's, where my, that's my brother right there. I'm like, what? He goes, there, where are you standing? He's, my brother's buried there. I'm like, oh, my gosh, Jeffrey. Like, for goodness sake, we've talked about this. There's like no headstones or markings or anything. And like, he's like, my grandmother's buried around there somewhere. I said, it sounds like you've got people buried everywhere. He said, do you know? He said, it is like impossible to buy land in Kenya without dead people buried somewhere in the yard. It's just weird, man. It's just like dead people buried everywhere. But you'll see all of that on the TV show. It was good fun. Um, why don't we break into groups? We're going to wrap up now because it's half past 11. Break into groups of three or four. And I want you to just ask each other, be honest. Like out of those three things, what, what is something that you think gets in between you and God? And then have a think about what's a, a first step that you can take. So Michael, put some music on. That'd be great. Yeah, turn around three or four at the most, otherwise it gets too big.